Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 20, Leviticus chapter 13 continued. Before we dive completely back in to Leviticus 13, let me take uh, a moment to make a couple of observations, which I hope is going to help us keep on track and keep what it is that we're going to be studying in the proper context and the proper perspective. First, I'd really like to reinforce why it is that studying the Torah, and especially as it concerns Leviticus, is so important for us. Now, for those of us who were saved and brought up in the traditional church environment, the world of Torah and the Old Testament sounds almost like a different Bible than the world of the New Testament. And I contend that that's because we read the end before we read the beginning. And it's as though we went to a theater, we saw the final act of a three-act play, and then we went back many times to see that third act without ever viewing acts one and two. And when one does that, the conclusions we draw can be anywhere from incomplete to several degrees off the mark of what was intended by the author. Well, we're, we're now finally giving serious study to these opening scenes of God's word to mankind. And in some cases, it's establishing a context that's somewhat different than we might have expected. For some believers, this is a little bit uncomfortable. All right? And a few will even lash out in fear that cherished man-made doctrines might be compromised. But that discomfort is something we're all going to have to fight through. Or we're just going, we're just not going to absorb all the wonder that there is for us to absorb in the New Testament. Now I want to share all of you that the further we get into Torah, the greater your faith is going to grow. Okay? And the greater you're going to understand why Jehovah sent his Messiah to save us. What will be challenged is not our faith in the word of God or in Jesus Christ, but rather some of the doctrines of men that we've all been taught since we were children. The book of John tells us that Yeshua, Jesus Christ, is the word and the word is God. Every Christian knows that the word is just another term for scriptures or the Bible. But what word was John talking about? Believers rarely stop to think that the word of God for John and Paul and Peter and all the rest of Christ's disciples and the apostles that followed was the Old Testament. Primarily the Torah. There was no such thing as other scripture than for the Old Testament for at least 150 years after Jesus' death on the cross. There was no such thing as a New Testament until around 200 A.D. 
And so far as what John was directly referring to in his book as the meaning of the word, what was in his mind, it was only the Old Testament. Jesus, Yeshua, is the Torah. Now let me state before I'm misconstrued. I certainly, of course, accept the New Testament as God-breathed and part of God's word. But to make the New Testament as the only surviving remnant or only still valid portion of God's word is a grievous error. Okay. Further, it is intellectually inaccurate, if not dishonest, to say that any reference to the term word, the word, or to scripture in the New Testament is referring only to itself. Not one New Testament writer had any inkling that a century or so after they wrote that panels of church leaders would get together and declare certain epistles and gospels and apocryphal letters as God-breathed scripture. Jesus put it all in a way that I'd actually like to see become part of the creed the Torah class endeavors to follow and it's this and we find this in John 5 46 Jesus said for if you believed Moses you'd believe me for he wrote of me but if you do not believe his writings how will you believe my words now that's kind of startling in John 5, Yeshua is in the temple on Sabbath and he's talking to some Jews. Now these Jews would argue vehemently that certainly they knew Moses. How dare he say such a thing? They knew what he wrote, but in fact, they only thought they did. What they knew most and what colored the Torah scripture they read were their doctrines and traditions that they had developed over the centuries. They would try to pound the scripture into a mold created by tradition. Christianity has done the same thing for 1800 years. We establish doctrines and then make the scriptures read in such a way as to validate the doctrines. Scriptures that don't validate the doctrines are left out of the argument. Or more often, verses are taken out of context and ascribed to some meaning about which they have nothing to do. Yeshua is telling all who will listen that the Torah of Moses is the foundation for understanding everything that will follow it, including the New Covenant, by the way. How, Yeshua says in John 5.46, how can you possibly believe my words if you won't believe Moses' words first. Understanding Moses is important not just to Jews, but to Gentiles. So I ask you, how do you think we can possibly understand what Jesus was meaning by the things he said if we not only don't understand what Moses was meaning, we have never even seriously read his words? Or worse yet, we discount those words. Say they're... They were just a burden that's been thankfully lifted from us. Right? And discarded by the very one, the very one who has just said that first 
you got to believe the words of Moses. Hopefully Torah class is on the way to kind of remedying some of that. Second matter. It is particularly hard for Americans to read the Torah without bristling at some point because it constantly shows Yehovah destroying individuals, even entire nations, for the sake of his elect group, Israel, as a whole, and for the sake of his purposes. I've traveled a lot about the world, around the world, probably a lot of you more than I have. And in my experience, I've not encountered a culture that is more individualistic than America. Okay. We look at things based on the rights of a single person as being most important. Okay. And so we Americans view the Bible through that lens. It's hard for us to read Leviticus, especially Leviticus, and see multitudes of innocent animals sacrificed for priests to be burned up by God who apparently did little more than debauch a ritual procedure. And all this at God's specific command. Yet God's holiness, which was represented by his tabernacle and by the nation of Israel, would tolerate no threat. God's holiness and therefore the holiness of his people is so preeminent that individuals and their families often suffered and died in order that purity would not be harmed or holiness defiled. The discomfort of individuals was not going to be tolerated at the expense of jeopardizing the spiritual well-being of his holy nation and his kingdom. If we want the truth then we must view God in the context of who he actually is and the not in the context of how we'd like to have it. Okay. The God we see in Torah is the truth. Just as the God we see in the New Testament is the truth. One has not given way to the other. They're one and the same. Jehovah has not discarded some of his attributes in favor of others. The sum of the parts paints the best picture of the whole. So let's get back to the word and let's get some more of the picture. We were in Leviticus 13 and the study of Sarat. Serious skin diseases that causes one to become ritually unclean. And when we ended our last lesson, we were discussing this state of limbo. Limbo is my word, that's not a scriptural word. A kind of no man's land that a person who was suspected of having Sarai, but it was not yet confirmed, found himself in. He was not put outside the camp, as the unclean typically were. However, he was considered unclean while in that period of waiting for the decision about it to be rendered. Guilty until proven innocent, so to speak. Yet we have to recognize that these laws in Leviticus about Sarat and ritual impurity are but physical demonstration of a spiritual reality that exists even today. The unclean are seen by God as unfit to have a relationship with him or with the community of God. The unclean are in a hopeless state unless they repent and accept Yeshua. 
Today, the unclean are unbelievers. This is because, even though all people are born common and clean, our sin natures eventually lead to our sinning and therefore to uncleanness. How often do we hear, even in some excellent Bible-believing and Bible-teaching churches, that God's love is just too great to damn everyone or anyone to hell and eternal separation from himself who doesn't submit to his son. That his holy back certainly would not be turned on those who live a good and moral life and give to charity and care for the poor and are nice and generous to a fault, even spiritually oriented. But they just can't bring themselves to make Yeshua the Lord of their lives. Surely, a loving and merciful God would never do such a thing. The God of the New Testament is no less severe than the God of the Old because He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are, you are either clean and holy and in the kingdom of God or you're unclean and unholy and out of the kingdom. And that judgment is made purely on whether or not you trust Christ. Okay, let's read Leviticus 13 from verses 1 through 17. Leviticus 13. It's a long chapter, so we're going to cut it up into pieces. We're going to begin by reading verses 1 through 17. Adonai said to Moshe and Aharon, Moses and Aaron, if someone develops on his skin a swelling, a scab or a bright spot which could develop into the diseased Sarat, he is to be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons who are priests. The priest is to examine the sore on his skin. If the hair in the sore is turned white and the sore appears to go deep into the skin, it is Sarat. And after examining him, the priest is to declare him unclean. If the bright spot on his skin is white, but it does not appear to go deep into the skin, its hair is not turned white, then the priest is to isolate him for seven days. On the seventh day, the priest is to examine him again, and if the sore appears the same as before and hasn't spread on the skin, then the priest is to isolate him for seven more days. On the seventh day, the priest is to examine him again, and if the sore has faded and it hasn't spread on his skin, then the priest is to declare him Clean. It's only a scab, so he's to wash, so he's to wash his clothes and be clean. But if the scab spreads further on the skin after he has been examined by the priest and declared clean, he's to let himself be examined yet again by the priest. The priest will examine him, and if he sees that the scab is spread on his skin, then the priest will declare him unclean. It is sarat. If a person has sarat, he's to be brought to the priest. The priest is to examine him, and if he sees that there is a white swelling in the skin which has turned the hair white and inflamed flesh in the swelling, then it is chronic serot on his skin, and the colon is to declare him unclean. He's not to isolate him because it's already clear that he's unclean. If the serot breaks out all over the skin so that, so far as the colon can see, the person with serot has sores everywhere in his body, from his head to his feet, then the priest is to examine him, and if he sees that the sarat has covered his entire body, he is to pronounce the person with the sores clean. It has all turned white, and he is clean. But if one day inflamed flesh appears on him, he will be unclean. 
The priest will examine the inflamed flesh and declare him unclean. The inflamed flesh is unclean. It is Sarat. However, if the inflamed flesh again turns white, he is to come to the priest. The priest will examine him. See, uh, if he sees that the sores have turned white, then the priest is to declare clean the person with the sores. He is clean. Okay, chapter 13 is another of those times in the Torah when Yehovah is speaking to both Aaron and Moses. And in verse 2, we get this list of general symptoms of skin disease, such that anyone that has any of these is supposed to come to a, a priest and be examined. Rashes, swellings, hair and skin discolorations that are not normal are each a cause for concern. And basically the idea is that if the hair in an infected area has turned white, or if the rash that's present seems to go deeper than just the surface of the skin, or if the lesion leaves a depression in the skin deeper than the surrounding area, then serious Sarat is suspected. But it, but it is the priest. It is not the individual who has this disease who must determine it. Because it's the priest whose job is to distinguish clean from unclean. Of course, there are some stages of certain skin diseases that makes it hard to determine just how serious this matter is. So if an infected area on the body has started to turn white, but the hair isn't white yet, then the person is usually isolated, but he's not sent out of the camp yet. At this point, the per- at this, point this person's in kind of a limbo. Right? Until seven more days pass, and he has to be re-examined again by the priest. And if the situation hasn't worsened, then he's still quarantined for another seven days, again re-examined, and after 14 days, if the affliction is lessened, then he's okay. He's clean. He can go home. But if the afflicted area enlarges, he must present himself to the priest yet again, in all likelihood he'll be declared unclean, and that means he's going to be set outside the camp for as long as the disease persists. Now, much like the new mother who gave birth and goes through this time of greater impurity and then a time of lesser impurity, but still unclean, in both cases, the person that is in this limbo period awaiting the outcome of a diagnosis is in a state of impurity, unclean. But it's a lesser degree. Therefore, he doesn't have to go outside the camp. However, he may not live in the tent or home of his family or with the general population. And he can have no part of religious ritual at this time. Rashi, who was a great Hebrew sage, said that there was a special tent or home for these limbo people. Near the outskirts of the camp, but still not outside the camp. Now, Though the Bible doesn't necessarily equate the two, it was generally assumed by the Israelites that a skin disease, if diagnosed as Sarat, 
was essentially an outward mark of an inward and hidden spiritual condition known only to God. That is, that this person had committed some kind of an offense against Jehovah and was therefore being punished by having his sinful condition exposed for everybody to see in the form of this skin disease. Now, several weeks ago, we discussed how some sacrifices were performed if a person should start just feeling guilty but wasn't even sure what they might have done. When we connect that with this concept of the Hebrews' belief that Sarat was a punishment from God for a secret or unknown trespass of some kind, then we see why the more nervous and insecure among the Israelites probably offered a lot of these Seva sacrifices to atone for things that might result in Sarat if they didn't do these rituals and atone for some unknown trespass. But we must never think that that was the purpose God intended, not even in the Old Testament case. Christ makes it clear that we must never assume that, for instance, somebody's illness or misfortune is directly associated to a trespass, a sin that they might have committed. Obviously, as believers, we are aware that when sin entered the world, so did death and disease. And as believers, we're not immune to death and disease because these outer shells, these bodies, are just the same as the non-believers. They run around in the same flesh that we do. So it is fair to say that there is some kind of relationship between sin and sickness, yet, as is pointed out time and again in the Bible, one cannot and should not make the judgment that a person's health can be directly correlated to how good or bad a life he leads, or that we can blame a person's disease on behavior that maybe we view as inferior to our own. The Israelites, just out of Egypt, were a very superstitious people. So were the Israelites who first entered Canaan, and those who first formed the sovereign nation of Israel, and then those who were exiled to Assyria, later those who were exiled to Babylon, and so on. It is not much of a leap for us to understand the horrible social stigma that was carried with contracting Sarat and then being set outside the gate. As devastating as it was to be declared ritually unclean, thereby separated from all relationship with God, you were now a social outcast. And as far as the healthy Israelites were concerned, you deserved it. For the family of the afflicted person, it was equally devastating because the outcast's condition reflected on them. If it was the man of the family who contracted Sarat, it could mean poverty for his family. If it was the mother, the wife, it could mean their separation, her separation, even from an infant child, possibly for life. Now, just as the first eight verses... 
of chapter 13 deal with newly discovered instances of skin disease. Verses 9 through 17 deal with what it calls chronic cases. Some translations might say old, which is a bit confusing, but it just means ongoing or reoccurring. So the idea is that somebody may have a skin disease that's ongoing, that is ongoing, but has been determined it's not serious. And therefore that person didn't have to be declared unclean. Or he may have had Sarat, he was put outside the camp, it healed, he was restored to purity, and therefore he'd been allowed to continue, continue his life as normal. But, because some of the symptoms persisted or it returned, he had to be re-examined again by the priest in order to ensure that it hadn't worsened and become again Sarat. So for chronic skin afflictions, a little bit different set of criteria was set up. In a nutshell, if raw, exposed flesh was present, it meant the disease hadn't healed yet, and it was to be considered Surat. No seven-day period of limbo after which there's another examination. Most of our translations talk about the flesh turning white. And if it's turned white, then it's a good indication that healing is taking place. This is a little confusing because whereas in previous verses the skin turning white was a bad thing okay, as it was involving a loss perhaps of skin pigment it was a sign of disease. In this case the white skin is referring to newly grown and healthy skin a sign of healing so the person is declared clean. Let's read a few more verses here and see if we can get through this. Let's read verses 18 all the way to 46 now. Another big chunk. If a person has on his skin a boil that heals in such a way that in place of the boil there is a white swelling or a reddish-white bright spot, it is to be shown to the priest. The priest is to examine it. If he sees that it appears to be lower than the skin around it and his hair has turned white, then the priest is to pronounce him unclean. The disease of Surat has broken out in the boil. But if the priest looks at it and doesn't see any white hairs in it and it isn't lower than the skin around it but appears faded, the priest is to isolate him for seven days. If it spreads on the skin, the priest is to declare him unclean. It is the disease. But if the bright spot stays where it was and is not spread, it is the scar of the boil. And the priest is to declare him clean. Or if someone has on his skin a burn caused by fire, and the inflamed flesh where it was burned has become a bright spot, reddish white or white, then the priest is to examine it. And if he sees that the hair in the bright spot has turned white, then it appears to be deeper than the skin around it. It is Surat. It has broken out inside the burn, and the priest is to declare him unclean. It is a sore from Surat. But if the Kohen examines it and sees no white hair in the bright spot, and it is no lower than the skin around it, but looks faded, then the priest is to isolate him for seven days. On the seventh day, the priest is to examine him. If it has spread, then the Kohen is to declare him unclean. It is a sore from Surat. But if the bright spot stays where it was and has not spread on the skin but appears faded, it is a swelling only due to the burn. The priest is to declare him clean because it's only a scar from the burn. If a man or a woman has a sore on the head or a man in his beard, then the priest is to examine the sore. If he sees that it appears to be deeper than the skin around it with yellow thin hair in it, then the priest is to declare him unclean. It is a crusted area. 
a sarat of the head or beard. If the priest examines the diseased crusted area and sees that it appears not to be deeper than the skin around it without any black hair in it, then the priest is to isolate for seven days the person with the diseased crusted area. On the seventh day, the priest is to examine the sore. If he sees that the crusted area hasn't spread, that it has no yellow hair in it, and that the crusted area is not deeper than the skin around it, then the person is to be shaved, except for the crusted area itself, and the priest is to isolate him for seven days. On the seventh day, the priest is to examine the crusted area, and if he sees the crusted area is not spread and does not appear to be deeper than the skin around it, then the priest can declare him clean. He's to wash his clothes and be clean. But if the crusted area spreads after his purification, then the priest is to examine him, and if he sees that crusted area has spread, the priest is not to look for yellow hair. He is unclean. But if the crusted area's appearance doesn't change and black hair grows up in it, then the crusted area is healed, he is clean, and the priest is declaring clean. If a man or a woman has bright spots on his skin, bright white spots, then the colon is to examine him. If he sees that the bright spots on the skin are dull white, it's only a rash that is broken out, he's clean. If a man's hair has fallen from his scalp, he is bald, but he's clean. If his hair has fallen off the front part of his head, he is forehead bald, but he's clean. But if on the bald scalp or forehead there is a reddish-white sore, it is Surat breaking out on his bald scalp or forehead. Then the priest is to examine him. If he sees that there is a reddish-white swelling on his bald scalp or forehead, appearing like Surat on the rest of his body, he is a person with Surat. He is unclean. The, co the Kohen must declare him unclean. The sore is on his head. Everyone who has sarat sores is to wear torn clothes and unbound hair and to cover his lip and cry, unclean, unclean. And as long as he has sores, he'll be unclean. Since he is unclean, he must live in isolation. He must live outside the camp. When Sarat affects an article of clothing, or is that as far as I want to go? Yeah, that's as far as I want to go for right now. Okay. These verses continue with the diagnosis process of skin disease on people, and these conditions are ones that seem to arise as sort of a secondary infection. This is perhaps, or rather, that is perhaps there was a burn that never healed correctly, and now it's infected, or... The person had some other condition for a time, and now these recognizable skin disease traits of Sarat begin to show up. Now, we're not going to go over all the long list of fine points contained in these 28 verses, as they simply define in very great detail what a certain skin condition is to be diagnosed as, in accordance with how it looks and where it's located, hair, scalp, beards. And it helps the priest to determine if what is occurring is natural or not. As an example, is hair loss from the result of disease or from just natural balding? If it's normal balding, the person is to be declared clean. If it's the result of certain diseases, perhaps the person is deemed unclean. Now, verse 42 introduces us to a term that we need to be familiar with. The term is Metzorah. A Metzorah is the name a person is called who is diagnosed with Sarat. And this title means 
that the person is impure, they're unclean. And in verse 45, we get the instructions of just what's to be done with a mitzvah. Right? Someone who's been declared by a priest to have sarat. First, that person's garments are to be torn. In Hebrew, it's the word parum, usually translated correctly as rent or torn. Now, although by tradition, rather than the cloth of the garment literally being torn and shredded like one would a rag, okay, the person would just pull the garment apart at a seam. Undoubtedly, so they could be sewn back together at a later time. The tearing, the parum of the garment, was not so much a signal to others that the person was unclean and had to be avoided as it was an indication that the person was in mourning. Okay. In the case of Sarat, the mourning was due to his condition of being unclean and the serious repercussions from that. The next step was that the Metzorah's head had to be bared. As with the tearing of the garment, the bearing of the head wasn't a specific indicator of being unclean, rather it was a general sign that that person was bearing shame for some reason. A woman committing adultery, for instance, had to bear her head. Bearing the head meant a woman would take off her typical scarf-like head covering, unpin her hair, and let it hang loose in a very disheveled fashion. This was the way a prostitute was forced to wear her hair at all times. A man would no longer wear a cap, and he too would let his typically long hair loose and unkempt. Thus the community could see that this person was bearing shame for some kind of an offense. Their third requirement was that the Metzora had to cover his upper lip with his hand whenever anybody approached. This was the specific indicator that that person was unclean and others should steer clear. The Metzora was to take his hand, place it above his upper lip, below his nose, and when anyone came near to him, he was to say, unclean, unclean, which was a warning to others to stay back. So, we see here that a sense of personal mourning and of personal shame and a personal loss of holiness were all involved with contracting Sarat. A person's life could be ruined from such a thing. A thing that was usually not that person's fault. But the worst of it is yet to come. At this point, a person has to be set outside the camp, alone, or often with a few others that might be afflicted. And as long as it was determined by the priest that he or she was still infected, with Sarat, they would remain outside the fellowship and proximity of their families, of their friends, and of the entire nation of Israel. And this person also was shunned by God. This is not a superstition. This is not a tradition. Scripture plainly says that that person with Sarat has been separated from the Lord.
What a terrible thing. I mean, what a picture this paint, what, paints. What a very sad picture. A person is declared unclean due to a skin disease, often through no fault of their own. He's excommunicated from his family, his people, and from any relationship with God. I've said on numerous occasions that I believe that perhaps the primary reason for Jehovah ordaining the rules and laws and procedures and rituals as he did was to use these often heartbreaking and, and, and wrenching situations as dramatic visuals of his spiritual principles. You see, the condition of these poor, wretched Betsoras is basically the way Yehovah sees all unbelievers. As unclean, as outcasts. Yes, in the current world, these unclean people, unbelievers, the majority of people on our planet, represented by so many people that we may dearly love, our neighbors, our friends, family members, are as metzoras to God. They live out their days outside the camp, outside of any relationship with Him. They may well be popular, they may well have a happy marriage, a great family, lots of kids, have a wonderful job, be financially successful, admired far and wide, but that time is so short. Upon their inevitable death, they will be forever separated from everything and everyone who is godly. What a tragedy. So from a spiritual principle standpoint, the sarat on a person is but an outward visualization of his inward, that is his spiritual condition. We saw this same principle demonstrated back in Exodus. When Moses, uh, with Moses rather, when Jehovah had him put his arm into his cloak. Remember this? And he pulls it out. Not with leprosy on it, but with Sarat. Now that we've studied Sarat, can you better see the significance of that incident between God and Moses. For a moment, Moses was made acutely aware, aware of being unclean and what it meant. Then Jehovah had him put that diseased arm back into his cloak. It was healed of Sarat and Moses was made clean. God was showing Moses his true inner spiritual condition. And then just as dramatically, God showed Moses that it would take an act of God to heal him from that spiritual uncleanness. Nothing else would do. That was all a pattern and a model and a shadow of what God was going to make available to all mankind by means of his son, Yeshua. Yeshua, God, would make the incurably unclean, you, me, everybody, clean. Yeshua would take us who are hopelessly exiled outside the camp, suffering from a kind of uncleanness through which no man could claim exemption and bring us into the camp clean into the fellowship with the God of Israel. Let's move on a little bit more. Hallelujah is right. 
We're going to read now uh, 13, 47 through 59, which I guess is the end of the chapter. When Sarat infects an article of clothing, whether it be woolen or linen garment, on the threads or the woven in parts of either linen or wool, or on a hide or an item made of leather, then if the stain on the garment, hide, threads, woven in parts, or leather items is greenish or reddish, it is an infection of Sarat and is to be shown to the priest. The priest is to examine the stain and isolate the article that has the infection for seven days. On the seventh day, he is to examine the stain. If the stain is spread on the garment, threads, woven in parts, or leather, whatever its use, the infection is a contagious serot. The garment is unclean. He is to burn the garment, threads, woven in parts, of either wool or linen, or the item of leather having the infection. For it is contagious serot. It has to be burned up completely. But if, when the priest examines it, he sees that the infection is not spread on the garment or into the threads or woven in parts or on the leather item, then the priest is to order that the article having the infection be washed and then isolated for seven more days. The priest is to examine it after the stain has been washed, and if he sees the stain has not changed color, then even though the stain is not spread, it is unclean. You're to burn it up completely. It's rotten, no matter whether the spot's on the outside or the inside. If the priest examines it and sees that the stain has faded away after being washed, then he is to tear the stain out of the garment. The leather, threads are woven in parts. If it appears again in the garment, threads woven in parts or leather item, it is contagious. You're to burn it up completely, the article that had the stain. But if the infection is gone from the garment, threads woven in parts or leather item that you have washed, then it is to be washed another time and it will be clean. This is the law concerning infections of Sarat in a garment of wool or linen or in the threads or the woven in parts or in any leather item. When to declare it clean, when to declare it unclean. Okay. We really, I mean, we, we, we encounter now this really odd twist beginning in verse 47. The condition of Sarat is now applied to inanimate objects. Not people, but fabrics and leather. Obviously, we're no longer talking about human diseases like psoriasis and leukoderma. Yet the Torah continues to refer to the discolorations and growths on fabric and leather as sarat. And the condition made that fabric and leather ritually unclean. This is consistent with what we learned several chapters earlier. That uncleanness could be transmitted to things like pots and bowls and chairs and other inanimate objects. Now, it's probably good to pause for a moment and remember that the underlying issues of the matter of Sarat and kosher eating and a new mother's temporary impurity and so on are about holiness and its opposite uncleanness. And what we find is that holiness and uncleanness are incompatible. They can't occupy the same space. They cannot be allowed to touch. One aspect of holiness is wholeness. 
And in verse 47, where it speaks of cloth made of wool or linen, the operative word is or. Because wool and linen were the two most widely used fibers for making clothing in Bible times. But it was in, rather it was Jehovah's command that his people not mix the two fibers in order to form a piece of cloth. That was, we're going to actually find that direct command spoken of again in Deuteronomy. Wool was not to be used along with linen to form a piece of cloth. A lot of speculation is offered as to why those two fibers, wool and linen, aren't to be mixed. Perhaps the most apparent is that one fiber comes from an animal, the other comes from a plant. So, Hebrews were not to wear garments made from a mixture of animal life and plant life. It's the mixture of the fabrics that is at odds with holiness. Mixture as opposed to wholeness. And Jehovah's opposition to anything that does not represent wholeness is being demonstrated as a spiritual principle here. This spiritual principle of wholeness is, as are all spiritual principles, applicable in the New Testament as well, because there we're going to find dozens of scriptures warning us against things like believers marrying unbelievers, believers lying with prostitutes, the clean mixing with the unclean, believers worshiping Jehovah and other gods, the general command not to be unequally yoked, all right, and so on. The rule about Sarat on cloth and leather is that if a Sarat type of infection is found in the cloth used for garments, or on leather used for garments, or shoes, or anything for that matter, then the object's unclean and it has to be dealt with in some way. And the procedure is familiar and basic. The common Israelite brings the suspected object or article of clothing to the priest, and if the priest thinks it's Sarat, then that item is put into isolation for seven days. If after seven days the infection is spread, it is deemed to be Sarat, and the item has to be burned, because it's ritually impure, it's unclean. But if the infection doesn't spread, the item can be washed with water, then it's isolated for another seven days, and if the infection's appearance is still the same after those seven days, it's deemed unclean and it has to be burned up. can't be saved. If, however, the infection is diminished, then only that part of the cloth or leather that had the infection on it had to be torn out, and the remainder of the article stays free of infection. So all is okay. An object that had the infected part removed had to be washed, immersed in water in order to be used again. You know, it is interesting, is it not? The idea of water immersion was the method for purification from uncleanness. And it's woven so tightly together here in Leviticus and then later in John the Baptist's ministry and then finally Christ's. Why is immersion in water so integral to all of these rituals and ministries? I mean, does water have some inherent property that when used in ritual purification like baptism, that it produces spiritual cleansing? How come we're not immersed in wine 
Or how about olive oil? The answer to that question is like the all always the problem with the question of why. Why God's choice of certain animals for sacrifice? Why can certain things be eaten and others not? After all, as we've talked about before, a clean animal is not a normal or a whole animal and an unclean animal is an abnormal or not whole animal. There's nothing inherently better about a sheep than a camel or a rabbit than a pig, for that matter. The use of water for immersion instead of something else, the choice of which animals are clean and unclean, which food is clean and unclean, is simply a decision and declaration by God for his own good reasons. Reasons which somehow mirror the eternal spiritual world. world. Reasons that never change. Because he who is the creator of the spiritual and the physical never changes. The answer to why water immersion was so central to John the Baptist and to Christ's ministries is because it stays within the same spiritual pattern and model sit down here in Leviticus. A pattern demonstrating how the unclean become clean. And that is exactly what the last verse of chapter 13 tells us. That the purpose for these procedures that determine if somebody or something has Sarat isn't about diseases and plagues. It's to distinguish clean from unclean. I mean, do you realize that that is one of the primary duties that a believer is charged with? We are to live our lives determining what is clean for us and what is unclean for us. We are to shun that which is is spiritually unclean for us. Absolutely shun it. How exactly do we know what can be clean and unclean for us? Read the Torah. Because as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.15, Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Because we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be ye separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. As we approach the end of chapter 13, I want to say that as with most commentary, Christian or Jewish, some of it's helpful and some of it's fanciful. There are many Jewish commentaries on the subject of Sarat. And they certainly are about equally divided into those same two categories. Helpful and fanciful. What is helpful for our purposes, though, is that the Jews have always recognized Sarat as a spiritual disease rather than a physical disease. In other words, Sarat is a physical sign 
as well as a physical judgment by Yehovah on the person who has it. It is a physical sign of that person's spiritual condition. The question I'll always ask then is, what sin did that person commit or what problem was that person having with God? The Gemara, which is a Jewish commentary on the Mishnah, which is itself also Jewish commentary, it's a commentary on commentary, lists seven sins and bad character traits that are said to be the cause of Sarat on a human. And of those seven, by far, the primary offense was that of a thing called Lashon Hara. Lashon Hara means forbidden speech. What this generally refers to is talking evil about someone or using words to destroy a person's reputation. But usually it is referring to slanderous remarks. Many of the great Hebrew sages regarded the sin of Lashon Hara as the equal, if not worse, to murder. The reason for that assertion is that speech was held in high regard by the Hebrews. Fear, actually. Because the Torah tells us that God spoke the universe into existence. We're we're all aware that most religious Jews have not since about 300 B.C. spoken God's name and will not tolerate someone speaking it in their presence. Therefore, speech is considered very powerful and our words have to be chosen very carefully. This Old Testament and traditional belief, of course, has its parallel in the New Testament book of James. And the traditional Jewish beliefs about speech undoubtedly colored James, brother of Jesus, views on speech, on speaking. Listen to James in his book, 3.5. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very word of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Pretty strong words about speech. Now, obviously, this New Testament passage is about speech, about words, about what we say. It is a warning against Lashon Hara. Jesus once said that it was not what went into our mouths that makes us unclean, but what came out. Obviously, that reference was to what? Speech. The words that came out. The words that hurt and condemn and judge. So we can see why this concept of Lashon Hara eventually became the prime suspect suspect as the sin or problem that caused a person to burst out in Sarat. The point is that while the skin diseases suffered by Ametzerah were quite real, the cause was not thought by the Hebrews to be biological 
but spiritual. So even as earthbound, as Jewish thought tended and frankly still tends to be, they recognized what it is that we've been discussing in Torah class. That what is at play in the Torah scriptures concerning Sarat and the unclean state that it causes comes from spiritual principles. And that uh, since Sarat brings such devastating consequences, since it has such horrid results with it, that the sin that brought it on must have also been devastating. And one of the most devastating sins, as far as the Jewish sages believed, was to talk slander or evil of someone. Lashon Hara. Okay. Next week we'll start Leviticus 14.